good news for the peacemakers. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Good news for the peacemakers. And uh, we're going to pick up again. We'll read, uh, we'll read all the way up through Matthew 5 till we get to verse number 9. We're almost through these Beatitudes. And I uh, know you thought we'd never make it, but I've really enjoyed it. So let's, let's pick up in verse number 1, read through verse number 9 of Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Stop there this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we come to you today thankful, thankful that we can say in Christ, that we can say because of what you've done for us, that we can say uh, with the rest of your people all across the world, even in turmoil, even in hardship, we can say it is well with our soul. And uh, you have made it well. You have made it well by the blood of Christ. You have made it well by paying the debt that we could never pay. You have made it well by bringing us to you when we could never get there ourselves, Lord. It is well with our soul. And this morning as we look, Lord Jesus, at your words, blessed are the peacemakers. May we catch a glimpse of what you intended by them. May we see what it is uh, to live in this blessed way, this way that you've provided for us. And uh, most of all, may you be glorified today, Lord Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Peacemakers. Uh, we all know what it is like to not be at peace. We all know what turmoil feels like. Um, probably one of the longest nights is the night when you lie in bed knowing that there is a rift or turmoil in a relationship between you and another, between two loved ones, and not being able to make a difference in that situation. It's kind of a helpless feeling, isn't it? We all know what it is like to not be at peace. Uh, even as we speak, lives are being lost overseas. Um, we've just lost 13 soldiers in Afghanistan because when it comes down to it of a lack of peace. Uh, really every political or military upheaval like that is a result of a lack of peace. Every shot fired, every missile launched, every tactic planned, every life taken really comes from a lack of peace. And it perpetuates a lack of peace. It's interesting because humanity did not start that way. In the initial state, there was peace, wasn't there? Uh, there was, as God created, a lack of hostility, a lack of enmity, at least right in the beginning. There was quietness and rest. There was confidence and there was hope. And as God created the world and the first human beings, Adam and Eve, there was a dwelling of harmony. And it was human harmony. There was also harmony with the rest of creation. There was harmony with the crops and the vegetation that they worked. There was harmony in their relationship, but Mostly, there was harmony with God. Harmony with God. It didn't take long, however, 
for that harmony and stability to be lost. Everything changed following that first disobedience. Everything changed. I want to read from Genesis 3. Uh, I think it gives us a good background of what we're talking about this morning. Genesis 3, starting in verse number 6. Feel free to follow along on the screen, or you can turn there. I'm just going to read these verses down through verse 19. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your de desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. As we think about what we've just read, think about the changes that have taken place. Think about the turmoil that ensued starting in this situation. First, there was some kind of change from freedom and openness to fear and hiding. For the first time, Adam and Eve had, had some kind of shame in their beings that caused them to look at each other, to look at themselves, and mostly to think about having to face God, and they hid. For the first time, they had a reason to hide in fear. Something that put a rift between them and God. Also, for the first time, I think, there's something that caused a rift between Adam and Eve themselves. Before this, we have every reason to believe that they dwelt together in harmony. But now, there's a blame game happening. The woman gave it to me to eat. Uh, the serpent gave it to me to eat. Something is wrong now. Adam looks at his wife and says, it's her fault. Instead of a togetherness, there's a wedge driven in. There's a wedge of, of guilt, a wedge of shame, a wedge really that leads to distrust, disunity. 
In another way, for the first time, really, human beings were met with the concept of an enemy. Before this, they had nothing to be afraid of, nothing to fear in terms of harming them, but now they realize from their interaction with the serpent that there are things to be afraid of. There are those who would seek their harm, those who would seek their trouble. There was also, in another sense, a realization of a lack of personal peace. For Eve, there would be sorrow and pain in childbearing. For Adam, uh, there would be uh, sorrow and pain in working the ground. For Eve, there would be a, a propensity of strife in her relationship. Uh, for Adam, the joy of productivity in doing his God-given tasks would be a continual battle until he returned, as God said, to the dust. In a grander sense, we also see the revealing and the foretelling of an ultimate lack of peace, and that is God's pronouncement to the serpent. Enmity between the serpent and the woman, between his seed or offspring and her offspring. There would be a, a fighting, a clashing of powers, as it were. And this fighting and clashing is typical of every fight and clash, but ultimately it points to the, the big fight of righteousness and evil. Now we know from following through in scripture that ultimately the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The enemy will ultimately be fully destroyed, but until then, it seems like peace is a fight. And isn't that ironic that peace has to be a fight? Do you see what this sin has done? Do you see what kind of hostility and enmity and strife, difficulty and cursedness that this sin has brought into the world, this lack of wholeness, this lack of completeness, this lack of harmony that affects every stitch, every fiber of our lives, every molecule, it seems, is somehow upset by this first and very consequential lack of peace. But we also know in Scripture that God is a peacemaking God. He is intent on making the wrong right. He, he does so in spectacular fashion in the gospel of Christ. Jesus is that ultimate seed of the woman. He came to provide peace in his death. The whole Bible really sets a stage for the ultimate peacemaker to step onto the scene. And we are called, in a smaller but very true sense, to follow in his steps. So we see this as kind of a big idea for today. God's revelation in the Bible is a story of his peacemaking. And as peacemakers, we reflect our Heavenly Father, who is the ultimate peacemaker. Now there's a lot to talk about in Scripture in terms of peace. We could spend a lot of time doing so, try to keep it somewhat limited this morning. And the first question we'll ask this morning is this, what is true peace? We often think of peace in terms of quietness or comfort. We say perhaps when we're sitting by the ocean or walking through the forest on a hike or sitting by a peaceful brook or just sitting in our favorite chair reading a book that it, it's peaceful because it's quiet, it's comfortable. But is quietness and comfort always true peace? 
Peace is a major theme in both the Old and New Testaments. In Hebrew, the word is shalom. You've probably heard that word before. Uh, it's used to speak of, of personal peace, relational peace, family peace, community peace, and international peace. Shalom is used as a greeting or a salutation by Jewish people all around the world to this day. If you go to a Jewish community or a community largely populated by Jewish people, you will hear that word used scores of times in daily interaction. Now, definitionally, shalom means completeness or wholeness. It means welfare and contentment. Maybe we could summarize it by saying it's all that is right, all that is good in relationship and in existence. It's not just quietness and comfort. You see, we can temporarily avoid difficult things in order to gain quietness and comfort, but is that true peace? We won't turn here today. I encourage you to do this maybe this afternoon sometime, look it up. But if you read the end of Exodus 21 through Exodus 22, you see laws that are all about making restitution. If you cause something to happen and life is lost, you're to make restitution. If something is lost or stolen, restitution is to be made. And if you read those passages, the translation that you might have, it might say something like, the person shall repay, or the person shall make restitution, or make restoration. It's, those terms are used over and over again in those two chapters. And interestingly, the literal reading of that is to make shalom, which is actually the root word where shalom comes from. So there's a sense in which wishing shalom on somebody is wishing for shalom. Now, in other words, that means wishing for peace is mean wishing for things to not just be quiet and comfortable, it's wishing for things to be made right. Wishing for restoration to happen, wishing for an offense to be cleared, for the air to be cleared, for consciences to be clear, for relationships to be free and honest. Just think of the garden scene again. Adam and Eve went from innocence and harmony and unity to hiding and fearfulness, seemingly in an instant. Casting blame on the other and fearing their creator in a punitive sense. Something had gone terribly wrong. There was a wrench thrown in the gears of human flourishing, if you will, or completeness and soundness. And I think we could put it this way. Sin is what brings a lack of peace. It brings a lack of peace internally. It brings a lack of peace relationally. It brings a lack of peace in community. It brings a lack of peace internationally. But mostly, mostly, it brings a lack of peace with our Creator. To go from God's friend to his enemy is the definition kind of the foundation of a lack of peace. That is the ultimate hostility. It doesn't get any worse than that. In other words, if you are God's enemy, it's to have picked the wrong fight. There is no true peace without the knowledge of and the right standing before God. Consider Colossians 1, verses 18 through 22. 
He is the head of the body, speaking of Christ, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now Paul here is underscoring this grand work of God in the gospel, which is, as he states it here, reconciliation. This is really the way of peace. It's the way of shalom, as it were. There can't be wholeness or soundness or flourishing apart from this kind of reconciliation and really restoration. Notice what this passage says about us as humans before this takes place. Uh, We are alienated and hostile in mind, and we were doing evil deeds. Sin brings lack of peace. If we're looking for peace and sin brings lack of peace, then we want to know where sin comes from, and we want to know where it really comes to bear. And it comes to bear exactly in the point that it makes us enemies of God. The ultimate hostility causes every other hostility. Even for those of us who have been made new and been redeemed in Christ, we still fight, as Paul tells us, the old man, which has that propensity toward enmity. So what is true peace then? What is true peace? I think true peace, firstly, is Godward. It's that peace, the the shalom that God affords us in the gospel. It's the reconciliation of man to God by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is where our ultimate enmity lies. And that's where our ultimate need of restoration lies. It's Godward. In our birth condition, in other words, there is an emptiness, a disunity, a discontentment, and ultimately a sinfulness that is a rift, a gulf, really, between us and our Creator. But God, in His goodness and in His mercy, has made a way for that rift to be removed. Think of another passage. Uh, Paul is speaking of the former division of Jew and Gentile, uh, and he speaks of Christ's peacemaking in Ephesians chapter number 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you see here where Godward peace and human peace are intermingled? Do you see here where God, in bringing us to himself, reconciling us to himself, has in essence reconciled the rest of humanity who also will come to him? For he brings us together in him. 
Godward peace leads us to relational peace. To put it another way, if we desire peace in relationships, we must first establish whether we have peace with God. Are we partakers of the peace afforded in the gospel? God is the ultimate peacemaker who brings that completeness, that wholeness, that soundness, that flourishing where there was division, hostility, and strife. He brings it to us. He also tells us, commands us really, to spread it around as well, which leads to our second question. What does being a peacemaker look like? What does being a peacemaker look like? look like. This is really the only place in the Bible where this word peacemaker is used like this. The word really harkens back to that word shalom, that, that root word for shalom. It's, it's making things right, restoring, reconciling. In other words, it's important that we read it as making peace rather than simply keeping peace. Now, maybe that's a little semantic. Maybe I'm splitting hairs there, but I think there's a difference. And what do I mean? Well, let me give you a personal example. I don't like conflict. I don't like disunity. I, I don't like arguing. Uh, I don't like uncomfortable situations. It's not really my thing. I, I, I don't like contention. Uh, I would say that not liking those things is kind of my natural disposition. And, and you might say, well, that's, that's good, isn't it? You don't, you don't like conflict. You don't like to get into arguments and contention and all that stuff. But it isn't always good. You see, in my own life, I know that the difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping is significant. Peacekeeping, in my experience often ignores an issue, avoids an issue, defers a discussion, uh, pushes the contention down the road. In my case, peacekeeping usually is just procrastination. In my life, it means that if I know something is wrong and needs to be made right, then I will naturally avoid it, push it off defer it because I want to avoid that contention and discomfort in a relationship. If there's something wrong in my marriage, I'm maybe naturally inclined to ignore it and not deal with it, not talk about it. If I see something struggling with something, maybe I'm naturally inclined to overlook it and pretend I didn't see it. If I hear the brakes squealing on my truck, I'm naturally inclined to turn up the radio a little bit so I don't hear it anymore. It, it comes into every part of life and those things may be peacekeeping. I may be seeking quiet and comfort, but I don't think they're peacemaking. Peacekeeping avoids what is wrong in order to keep a semblance of what is right. But he, peacemaking, rather, it hits what is wrong right on the head in order to make what is wrong right again. I see a significant difference there. Uh, we could ask this question this way. Would you rather have a facade of peace with contention boiling constantly under the surface? Or would we rather have true peace, wrongs made right, restoration made, even if it costs a few uncomfortable conversations? 
Here's maybe another example, and this is personal, but it probably applies to some of you as well. If you're a parent and you have two brawling children, either physically or verbally, sometimes the immediate solution is to separate the two. And I can say from personal experience that there would be a semblance of peace if we just kept the children separate at all times and all places. There wouldn't be any brawling there, would there? But would that be peace? What about in adulthood? Do you plan engagements, make shifts in schedules, cancel appointments, jump through hoops in order to have, or in order to avoid having two people face to face with one another? That might be keeping peace, but is it making peace? It may lead to a semblance of peace, like quietness, but is it peacemaking? These are small examples, but think of what God has done. I personally am thankful that God has not taken the role of peacekeeping, but rather of peacemaking. That is, instead of ignoring the cancer which is sin in my life, he has acted to make it right. And instead of avoiding the awkward situation of man's hostility toward him, he dove headlong into it with a remedy. Yes, a costly remedy, but a remedy. And peacemaking often is costly. It costs the life of the Son of God in the ultimate scenario. But in God's eyes, it was worth it. Restoration to wholeness and right relationship is far superior to putting on a false pretense of peace. God desires peace among his people, and he desires us to be peacemakers. Now, we'll see this passage that I'm going to read uh, in a few weeks again as well. But think of these words that Jesus spoke. Matthew 5, 23. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and first go, be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Now, think of the weight of those words as, as a devout Jewish man would have heard them. Jesus said it's better to be reconciled to a brother if there's an offense than it is to give an offering to God in that moment. It's better to make peace with a brother than to offer an empty sacrifice to God while there's hostility in a relationship. God desires peace. He desires restoration. He desires those right relationships. Maybe this is a personal question. But I have to ask myself this from time to time. Do I have someone that I'm avoiding because of a past hurt or difficulty? Do I stay away from them? Do I avoid them in the grocery store? Do I look the other way when they catch my eye? Is that peace? It may be quietness. It may be comfort. But I have to say, it's not peace. Jesus is telling us here that the kingdom way, the blessed way, is peacemaking. Paul gives us another example. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 
Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul here is speaking of restoration. We've seen from the Old Testament that peacemaking is restoration, and restoration is often costly, but peacemaking pays a price. It, it pays a price of sacrifice of time, of energy, of emotional energy. When we see a situation that is, for lack of better words, unpeaceful because of a transgression or unrighteousness, do we want to just sweep it under the rug or wish we hadn't known about it, wish we hadn't seen it, avoid it like the plague, or do we seek to restore? Restoration and peacemaking can be summed up, I think, in a sense, by Paul's words here. Bearing one another's burdens. Christ is the ultimate burden bearer. He bore our sin and shame. He took on our temptations and our sorrows, and he carried them perfectly to death. And then was victorious over that. Because of what Christ has done for us, we too are called to bear burdens, to make restoration, and to make peace because of the peace we have been afforded in him. Something else practical, maybe a little play on words here. Uh, peacemaking does not necessarily mean speaking your peace. Sometimes we want to use our words to make somebody feel the weight of their offense. We've been talking about that in our anger study on Tuesday nights. Uh, sometimes we want to use our words as a form of revenge. You say, well, I would never strike someone. I would never lash out and hit somebody. But if I could just get a word in there edgewise, let them know how I really feel. If I can just speak my peace. We can use our words as a form of atonement or repayment. But that's not what we're called to do. Peacemaking goes along with the other Beatitudes, and that it's not just what we naturally want to do. It goes along with the other Beatitudes, I think specifically meekness and mercy. Meekness is not seeking our own. It's not seeking revenge. And peacemaking is really the outworking of that. Rather than seeking revenge, we seek restoration. Mercy is displaying love and grace in a situation. Mercy is reaching out and helping when there's something wrong. And I think peacemaking is mercifulness in situations where what is wrong might be hurtful or offensive or hostile to your relationship. Think of Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 14 and 19 to give a little context, but I want to See a theme here. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We see a theme here. And I think it ties to peacemaking in that peacemaking never involves seeking revenge. Peacemaking never involves repaying evil with more evil. Peacemaking never involves cursing someone who hurt us. 
Peacemaking doesn't involve pride and anger. Peacemaking seeks, rather, restoration. If someone slaps you and you slap them back, there may be a repayment there. But is there restoration? There is no restoration. Think of this. If we sin against the holy God, which we all have, and he strikes us dead, which he could, there is repayment there. There is justice there. But that's not the kind of restoration that God displays in the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. We've said that the display of the cross, the peacemaking of Christ, is the ultimate peacemaking. And we can extend that peacemaking as well. Yes, we can seek peace in relationships. We can even seek peace in the world, and we generally should. But we best extend God's peacemaking when we proclaim how God has made peace in the gospel of Christ. For the gospel restores people to right standing with God, which is the foundation for all other peace. Think of the words of James in James 5, 19 to 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. As followers of Jesus, our eye should not be first to, am I at peace with the individual? Do we have a good relationship? Is, is our relationship comfortable and open? But we also should look out for this question. Does this person have peace with God? Are they straying and wandering from the Lord? Our first peacemaking is in offering the gospel of Christ. And from there, in our relationships, we seek peace. We seek restoration. We tackle the disunity head on in love with our brother because it's what Christ desires. Last question then, what is the good news for the peacemakers? And I think the good news for the peacemakers is that we are not pioneers in this effort, but rather in doing this, we reflect and show our sonship with God. Now, the fact that we can be called sons or daughters of God is a miracle of the gospel. Think of uh, John 1, 12 and 13. To all who received him, speaking of Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, listen, not by blood or the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God, but of God. We are born again as sons and daughters of God by his sovereign power and his miraculous will. We are made sons of God by nature, that new nature that comes with the new creation afforded in the gospel. And then we are shown to be and called sons of God when we reflect our heavenly father. God, our father, is the peacemaker. He is the restorer. Yes, he is just and he's full of righteous wrath, but he has made a way, as John wrote, for enemies to be called sons, for as many as receive him to be called the sons of God. 
Now think of that. Think of it. It's part of God's very nature to turn enemies into sons. And if that's part of his nature, then when we seek to bring restoration between enemies, we reflect that nature and that character in a very unique and a powerful way. Peacemaking may not be the natural way. We might rather keep the peace by ignoring difficulties, by ignoring problems, by ignoring a person. Peacemaking may be a comfortable way, while restoration is often costly and difficult. But peacemaking is the blessed way. For in peacemaking, we reflect our Heavenly Father, and as Jesus said, we will be called the sons and daughters of God. Lord, I pray this morning that first and foremost, the message of your peacemaking would have gone forth. Lord, if there's any person here who has not come into relationship with you, who has not seen the peace that you have purchased, Lord Jesus, if there's anyone here who does not know you and your sacrifice for their sin, the sin that causes that rift between us and you, the sin that makes us an enemy of you, Lord Jesus, would you draw that person to yourself? Would they see that you have made peace between enemies by the blood of your cross. And Lord Jesus, may all of us who do know you, may we seek restoration in relationships. May we seek to make peace with enemies instead of just keeping peace by ignoring it. May we seek to make peace when when there's a clash, when there's a disagreement. May we seek to make peace in our marriages, in our relationships with children, May we seek to have, yes, even the hard, the uncomfortable conversations, Lord, because you desire peace. You desire wholeness. You desire restoration, Lord. I pray specifically, Lord, for the cases where this is seemingly impossible, where there has been attempts to make peace, where there, there have been efforts and, and difficult conversations, where, there, where there, there have been hard days and sleepless nights over a lack of peace, Lord. This this happens in our sinful world. In those cases, Lord, may may your peace, that peace that passes all understanding, may it supersede and override. Thank you, Lord, that we can be called your sons and your daughters. Thank you for making peace. May we love, serve, and reflect you as we walk in this world until you come again. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.